Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Jonathan D. Beakey. Jonathan is an adjunct professor of historical theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he also serves as Director of Admissions and Registrar. Today we're talking to Jonathan about his brand new book, Duplex Regnum Christi, Christ's Twofold Kingdom and Reformed Theology, just published by Brill in their prestigious series, Studies in Reformed Theology. Jonathan, it's great to have you in the show. Congratulations on the book, and we really look forward to chatting about it. Thank you, Crawford. Thank you for having me on. It's well, a pleasure. It's, it's great to see you. Before we jump into Duplex Regnum Christi, Christ's Twofold Kingdom and Reformed Theology, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yes. Uh, so I'm married. I have uh, four children. Uh, live here in, in Grand Rapids. Uh, I work at, at the seminary, uh, Puritan Seminary, as you, as you indicated. Um, have been here since 2011. Uh, historical theology is, is my topic of, of interest and, and research and writing and, and study. Um, I work here as well as admissions director and registrar. I grew up in on, Ontario, Canada, so I'm a Canadian, so please don't hold that against me. <laughs> Um, love hockey and, and coffee, as, as a true Canadian would. And um, went, went to, uh, as I said, got married, four children, went to uh, both Westminster's, actually, Westminster in, in California for my uh, master's degree, and then uh, went to Westminster, uh, Philadelphia for PhD studies, but then finished that at the University of Groningen in 2019. Very good. And this book is the fruit of some of your recent research in this area, Jonathan, isn't it? So uh, this idea of two kingdoms, or uh, as you uh, help us see in the book uh, elsewhere in the tradition, a twofold kingdom, is is a really big issue in a lot of recent conversation in popular and academic reform theology, isn't it? And one of the things you're doing in this really magisterial book is taking that problem of interpretation and dropping um, shafts into it to try to establish what the historical position has been as it has developed um, over the course of Christian history um, more recently within the Reformed tradition. Massive project, massive range, complicated. So what were some of the challenges that, that faced you as you developed this project? You talk in the introduction about vocabulary, regional variety, social political context, and so on. What were some of the, the challenges that you faced? Yeah, very good. Um, so l- let me just, uh, before answering that, I can tell you a little bit about um, my interest in, in, this, in the topic, how I became interested in, in it, and then the challenges faced in, in researching it. So as I said, I, I grew up in, in Canada, Ontario. I went to uh, Redeemer University uh, where I studied under uh, Al Walters. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote uh, the book uh, Creation Regained. Uh, kind of got, got a foundation from more of a neo-Calvinist, uh, transformationalist 
type of background. And then, as I said, I went to uh, Westminster Seminary in, in California and studied under uh, David Van Drunen there. So kind of I got both sides, you know, in, in my educational background, more from the transformationalist uh, side of things and then from Dr. Van Drunen. And what always plagued me was uh, both sides or both camps, if you will, were were drawing from a reformed background, reformed sources. Both were claiming to be drawing from a historic reformed, the historic reformed position. And so it, it was always in the back of my mind, um, you know, how can both be be drawing from this one source? What truly is the historic reform position on, on you know, the, the two kingdom approach. Um, so th- that, that really is what plagued me and, and uh, was the, the central question in my mind as, as I uh, came to this research. Um, talking about challenges in this, uh, <laughs> a lot of challenges. Um, again, when you're trying to define what is the reform position, you know, that, that in itself is a very difficult uh, question, right? I mean, you're, you're dealing with a massive amount of period of history of, of figures, who to research, uh, how to be selective in this. Um, as, as you can tell from the book, I tried to, well, there's a large swath of time that I'm covering uh, from uh, John of Chrysostom to Benedict uh, Turretin. Uh, uh, that's... Um, you know, hundreds of years, right? So how do how do you bring this in in a concise way, and how do you uh, trace this you know historical progression of this doctrine over such a large period of time, and yet not be subject to the claim of cherry picking, right? Of you know selecting representatives just because they fit within you know what what you want to discuss. So that was a, a massive challenge to me. Um, as I'm trying to trace, you know, what what is the the reform position on this, um, and then and then as you as you indicated, you know, in terms of terms and definitions, as they as they change over time, and and how to relate that to the the different contexts within which uh, these terms were introduced and and what they meant and why, so those were those were significant challenges uh, to me as well. And then also a third challenge, I guess, is how, as a historian, how I am to remain objective in this. Yes, I'm very interested in it personally, as, as I described from my educational background. But how do I, as a historian, how do I remain objective in this and give a, give a, a true picture of, of what uh, these representatives taught and why they taught that? So yes, I tried to remain uh, distance, uh, objective in it, and yet in the concluding chapter, how to bring this to bear on systematic reflections of, of the twofold kingdom today. Yeah, so those, we, I guess, would be the three challenges. Yeah, good. Well, maybe come back to that last one towards the end of the conversation, Jonathan, when we think about the impact of the work. I suppose one of the major arguments that stretches across the chapters is the argument that discussion that within reform systematic theology, um, the, the 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 discussion of the twofold kingdom or the two kingdoms moves from being placed within discussions of politics or ecclesiology, eventually to be located within discussions of Christology. Now, 
maybe for some people listening, that seems like a very um, complex thing to get your head around. So just in a nutshell, could you break that big argument down and help us understand what's happening and why that matters? Sure. Yeah, that's a good good question. Uh, as you as you said, that is a, a one of the major arguments of the book is that as you as we come across this doctrine within the uh, reformational figures, magisterial uh, reformers, that the discussion often happens as you are finding it within a distinction between the magistrate uh, and, the, and the church. So, you know, the, the discussion al- always happens within the context of, of ecclesiology. So what the church is meant to be and how that's distinct from uh, the civil magistrate. Um, you see a shift over time as you get into Reformed Orthodoxy when the discussion happens much more uh, in Christology, in, in defining who Christ is and, and the person, his person, and, and his work. Uh, I describe this as more of a, a bottom-up approach in, in the conclusion, uh, as, you know, in the, in the re- uh, Reformational figures, more of a bottom-up approach Whereas as you get into Reformed Orthodoxy, more of a top-down approach, um, you know, more, much more of a Christological approach. And I think, that, you know, it, it's, it's helpful to consider this because it, it, it's helpful to understand where do you begin with your distinctions and, and, and definitions? What's the starting point for these definitions? Uh, for, the, for the magisterial reformers, um, it became... It, the discussion became in the, the created order. So looking here um, as, as the church is, is the function of the church as distinct from the magistrate, looking in the, this realm here, whereas in the Reformed Orthodoxy, it was, as I said, more, much more of a top-down approach. It begins with who Christ is um, and his work, and the distinction flows down from that. So it, it, it's important. It might seem like a minor difference, uh, but for the Reformed Orthodoxy, it was actually a very important difference um, because it because it matters where you start uh, in terms of uh, definitions. Hmm. And I suppose it matters where you start in terms of telling this story as well, doesn't it? So you, you begin your discussion with a very substantial chapter on pre-Reformation discussions of uh, this idea of, of, of two kingdoms. Uh, or perhaps we should say two cities or two swords. Um, could, could you help us understand what's happening with this idea before the magisterial ref, uh, reformers begin their articulation? Yeah, very good. Yes, as, as I said, I, I try to give a, a broad sweep of history. And, and again, you, you know, you're in, in terms of intellectual history, you're trying to show the organic development over time. So yes, I do, I do have... Uh, one chapter, it's a very select chapter, um, beginning with uh, ancient and medieval figures. So I begin with uh, uh, John of Chrysostom, um, you know, prior to Augustine. John of Chrysostom um, was actually picked up by uh, Reformed Orthodox figures in his distinction. And interestingly, uh, in his comments on 1 Corinthians 15, um, in his language of uh, how did I describe it? A kingdom of uh, of creation um, and a kingdom of approbation. So, interestingly, 17th century Reformed Orthodox figures picked up on his language and his exegesis of of First Corinthians 15, 
in, in their defense of a, a twofold kingdom. So they're looking for ancient uh, and early church fathers to, to um, support their doctrine. And then, yes, of, of course, you have the massive figure of Augustine, right, in, in his uh, two, two cities and, and uh, two kingdoms um, work. So, yes, uh, certainly that is uh, provides sort of the intellectual context for this later. And uh, interestingly for Augustine, he gives a much more of an eschatological approach to this uh, that was, uh, you know, very much part of, uh, you know, the two, two kingdom approach. So, yes, diff- different figures within the early church. Um, I only focused on a select few. Uh, Chrysostom, Augustine. I did in the medieval uh, fi- uh, figures. I, I uh, focused on Aquinas and then William of Ockham, and then also the uh, two swords construct within the medieval uh, period. So yes, they, it doesn't have the um, specific terminology of of the Reformed Orthodox, which was you know much more systematic and refined in in their in their precise definitions. But I tried to demonstrate the organic flow of this, that it's not something that they are creating, you know, out of the sky. You know, there, there are ancient and medieval precursors to this, even though, even though not everything is there. Organically, it's related, but it's, it's developing and they're drawing upon uh, different ancient and medieval precursors. Yeah, very good. And with, with, with this discussion of the pre-Reformation church, you take us immediately to Luther, don't you? And you explain in that chapter that, that Luther is hard to read on this subject. He, his terminology isn't always fixed or precise. He can sometimes use words with multiple significations. And again, in terms of concepts, he talks about two realms, two governments and two peoples, doesn't he? What, is, what does Luther do to set up the discussion for Calvin and, and the, the later Reformed Orthodox of how to think about uh, church and civil government. Yeah, yes. Sir, Luther is a hard uh, figure to to uh, summarize well, and and as I indicated in the introduction to this chapter on on Luther, um, this is a massive discussion in Lutheran scholarship. Um, it, it's it's a at the top of Lutheran scholarship. So to do justice to him in in one chapter was was certainly challenging. Um, and, and therefore, I had to rely on different summaries uh, for, for Luther and to, to try to summarize this well. And as you indicated, part of this was Luther wasn't a systematician. You know, he, he would employ uh, various terms equivocally, you know, throughout his works. And um, so I, I, I did rely on uh, Krauss. Um, who, who did a dissertation on Luther, and I, I thought he did that quite well. And he suggested these three different overlays of Luther, uh, the two realms, two rules, and two peoples, um, These and these uh, simultaneous overlays of Luther, and, and that that summarize well, summarizes well Luther's uh, two-kingdom doctrine. So that, that um, and, and that these three overlays had to be held simultaneously um, and, and that that would give uh, justice to the, the Lutheran doctrine. And then, of course, um, 
without falling into the uh, into the trap of uh, having a, a simple distinction of you know church and state, but that this is tied to all of Luther's uh, theology, a much more of a holistic approach uh, to this, and and that a lot of the paradoxes as held in in Luther's theology of you know law and gospel or um, you know different two kinds of righteousnesses um, that that this is important to consider all of that within within Luther's um, theology and then and then what I've also added to this as well is um, even though it's not explicit in Luther's theology that it's it's necessary to hold this as a post lapsarian doctrine for Luther. Um, many, many, I, I think, have failed and, and missed this point, um, that they've held that the two kingdoms doctrine for Luther was a natural distinction, one that was, you know, part of the created order. But I think it's much more helpful to understand it as a post-Lapsarian distinction for Luther, even though he might not have explicitly stated that. I think it, it makes sense within his theology that it, that it uh, presumes the presence of sin and the promise of, of a mediator and, and salvation, that this is important for him. So yes, that, you know, that, that's, um, I, I think from Luther, you see that in carried on into Calvin and other reformed Orthodox figures as well. Um, the, the need for sin to be there and, and the promise of a mediator for this distinction to make sense. Mm. And I suppose we see that come out very clearly in the, the, the chapter that you have on Mar uh, Martin Busser and John Calvin. And uh, I thought it was really interesting the way that you, you decentered Calvin from the discussion by having him come after Martin Busser. What, what was your thinking in doing that? What is What does Busser do for us, maybe, that Calvin doesn't in this in terms of this discussion? Well, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting that you know it. I, I do... Um, I, I don't, I didn't want to focus too much on Calvin, um, you know, and, and make him the, the sort of central figure and, and him to be the, the standard by which, uh, everybody else is measured, right? Uh, that, that's certainly not the point. And perhaps part of the, um, what I'm trying to correct in terms of the historical presentation of this doctrine, um, you know, that, that Calvin is the measure or the terminology of Calvin is the measure for this particular doctrine. But yes, uh, Bootser, I, I think, is, is rightly placed before Calvin in this. And I, I think I was keyed on to that by uh, Matthew Tuninga. Uh, Matthew Tuninga's work, um, very monumental work on Calvin and, and the two kingdoms. And he indicated, as, a, as I noted in, in my book, that uh, Calvin has to be understood within the context of Bootser's work on the De, De Regno Christi, and that that was uh, very formative uh, for Calvin. So, I, yes, I, I relied on, on uh, Tuninga's work for that. And what's the distinction in that chapter, Jonathan, between uh, a two-kingdom theology or a two-fold kingdom theology? What's, what's that all about? Right. So, yes, I... I um, I, I did note as well the importance of the singularity or the plurality of terms. So from uh, Calvin on, you actually have an indication of a singularity, the, the twofold kingdom, as opposed to uh, two kingdoms in the plural. Uh, two kingdoms in the plural 
is much more of a Lutheran term. Uh, Luther, in fact, used a plurality of terms as opposed to uh, Calvin. So from Calvin on, even into uh, the Reformed Orthodox period, you have the indication of a duplex regnum, uh, the, 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 the emphasis on the singularity there. And I think that that's um, indicative of, well, <laughs> it's not as catchy of a term as two kingdoms theology to say two-fold kingdom theology. It's much more of a mouthful. But uh, I, I think it's important to recognize that uh, Christ's kingdom is singular. And um, to, to emphasize that, as, as, I, as I made in the, in the conclusion, that from Calvin on, you, you didn't recognize a distinction of Christ's kingdom in terms of a scope or, or spatial, a, a spatial distinction, but in terms of mode. Um, that, that to me is a significant difference in, in the history of, of this scholarship, that the Reformed Orthodox, especially, and I think drawing from Calvin and others, uh, that they never distinguished a plurality of, of kingdoms in, in Christ. It's, it's a universal kingdom. And yet there is a distinction between uh, the, the kingdom that he administers as, as the son of God and the kingdom that he administers as God-man. So this is a, dis a distinction in terms of mode, uh, not in terms of scope. If it was in terms of scope, the, the, pl the plurality would, would make sense, right? And that there are two separate kingdoms that, that Christ administers. But no, it's in terms of mode, and, and therefore it's a, a singular kingdom. Now, so, yes, it's, it's Calvin is often criticised, isn't he, Jonathan, for the way in which sacred and civil government um, operated in Geneva? I'm thinking, of course, of uh, a very famous execution. Do you think that Calvin's practice was always consistent with his ideas of the, the relationship between the two the, the, the two parts? of the single kingdom of Christ. Yeah, that's a, I, I do deal with that in a, in a smaller section in the book. Um, I call it uh, this, chapter four, uh, section five, Calvin's twofold kingdom, consistent or confused application. And so I, I, I detail this a, a little bit in the book. I, I don't deal with it extensively, but as you, you rightly note, this is certainly one of the critiques that's leveled against him. Uh, was he actually consistent in his, in the application of this doctrine? Um, and, and I give various representatives who, who do say, yes, he was, um, he was inconsistent in his approach. And yet I tried to uh, moderate that a little bit uh, with um, saying, yes, he, he did have uh, this, um, again, I, I, I draw on Matthew Tuninga as well uh, for, for to some degree of this in, in his uh, defense of, of Calvin in, in the two kingdoms. But it, it makes a little bit more sense, um, as, as uh, I understand, uh, you, you mentioned his execution of Servetus. But it's interesting to note that Calvin did believe that even heretics uh, such as Servetus um, erred in two ways. They erred both against the the king, God's representative, and they erred against um, uh, theology as well. So even if uh, Calvin defended the ex ex execution of Servetus, um, he did 
so in 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 a sense uh defending you know his his uh, execution of this um you know because because servetus was going against god's appointed representative and so this was a civil matter as as much as it was uh, a theological matter as well so i'm not i'm not arguing that calvin was consistent in all matters and yet he tried to uh live by that distinction even in uh, this this particular execution. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I thought one of the really interesting ways in which the book was organised, Jonathan, was the way in which in the latter half of the book you focused on three representative locations, um, Leiden, Geneva, and then Edinburgh, as, as ways to show how, in different social, political contexts, reform thinkers were developing these ideas with particular kinds of emphases. And I suppose uh, in the chapter on Leiden, uh, your discussion of Franciscus Junius was especially fascinating because you emphasised that it was Junius who, as far as we can tell, was the first to make the distinction not just between ectypal and archetypal theology, but also between the essential kingship of Christ and the mediatorial kingship of Christ. Again, could you just break that down a little bit and tell us what is the essential kingship of Christ? What's the mediatorial kingship of Christ? And then how did this begin to feed into the tradition as it developed? Yeah. It, so, yes, as you, as you say, so I, in part two, I, I transitioned to the Reformed Orthodoxy and, and again, trying to demonstrate both the continuity and, and discontinuity from the Reformation period to Reformed Orthodoxy. And again, part of the challenge, as I indicated before, was, was how to slice up this history, right? How to give a good handle of this history. And so I, I drew on what's what's called institutional um, history, um, trying to look at, at these three representative centers as a as a good way of of a you know trying to give a handle of what Reformed Orthodox, Orthodoxy taught on this, and focused on these three centers: uh, Leiden, Geneva, and Edinburgh. Um, again, part of the reason why I, I focused on these three centers was to give a different uh, a political context for for each of uh, Reformed Orthodoxy, so focusing on three different uh, cities within three different political contexts, and then of course you have to again narrow it down a, a little bit more, and then focus on representative figures who taught at these particular institutions. So yes, I did uh, focus on uh, Junius as as one representative from Leiden an early representative uh, who taught there and uh, looked at, looked at Junius um, who, who's known for his uh, uh, Devera Theologia and his uh, archetypal ectypal distinction. Um, that's part of what he's well known for. And what I, what I found was that um, he may have been to my knowledge uh, the very first to use this precise distinction in, in terms of the twofold kingdom of Christ. Uh, th that's the earliest reference that I found uh, for, you know, the very precise Latin terminology for the essential king kingship of Christ as opposed to the mediatorial kingship of Christ. And what the what from Junius and the, the whole of Reformed Orthodoxy, what they meant by that, is a, an essential kingship of Christ is that 
kingship of Christ that's, that he exercises as, as logos. It's essential to him as, as second person of the Trinity. This is distinct, very distinct from the mediatorial kingship of Christ, that kingship that is given to him as God-man. And, and you think, well, how are, how are they getting this? Where, where's this coming from? Where's this terminology coming from? Well, they, they looked at uh, particular verses such as uh, Matthew 28, when it talks about a, a kingship that all authority is given to, to the, uh, Jesus Christ from the Father. Or 1 Corinthians 15, when, when the Son hands over a kingdom back to the Father. Well, what, what kind of kingdom is, is that, uh, or kingship is, is that referring to? And that's where the Reformed Orthodox came up with this distinction uh, between, between a, an essential kingship and a mediatorial kingship. So anytime that it's talking about a transfer of power or authority, that's referring to this mediatorial kingship that, that Jesus Christ holds as God-man and as mediator uh, on behalf of his people. Um, interestingly, the, the context for this is, uh, well, within, with, they're, they're coming uh, up to the Socinians. Uh, the Socinians um, have criticized the, re, the Reformed and, and are arguing for uh, the subjugation of the Son to the Father based on, on verses such as this, First uh, Corinthians 15 or Matthew 28, when it's talking about the Son receiving power from the Father. Well, what does that mean? Uh, that it, does that mean that the son is is less than the father, right? That the, that authority is not essential to the son. Well, this is this is the the context, the polemical context within which these terms have become important. Something very different than what the reformed have have struggled with. These these terms are not there within that context. And so, yes, I as as far as I know, Junius is the first one to have uh, brought this precise terms uh, to the forefront. Yeah, brilliant. Well, if we could move the discussion to the Edinburgh, uh, location of Edinburgh in in Scotland, Jonathan, Um, I thought there your reading of David Dixon's work was incredibly insightful. And again, you emphasise what made Dixon distinctive was that he, along with many other covenanters, I suppose, were arguing that while... Christ's kingdom was twofold, the civil magistrate had responsibility to impose upon their subjects both tables of the law. How, how distinctive was that position within the, the tradition as a whole? Yeah, very good. So, um, yes, Dixon was an interesting uh, fig, figure to, to cover, as well as uh, the other representative covered in Edinburgh was uh, John Sharp. Um, somebody less known than David Dixon, uh, but both were were certainly interesting to cover. But as you say, yes, Dick, Dixon, um, I focused on on him, and um, actually quite forcefully, he indicates that the magistrate is to enforce both tables of the law. Uh, this this is something that doesn't ring very true in the in the modern ear. Um, if I if I just quote this from from uh, page two twelve of, of the book, if then the magistrate may punish evildoers who offend against the second table and force and compel them to obedience by the sword of justice which God hath put put which God hath put into his hand, much more may he punish idolaters and blasphemers 
who offend against the first table. That's not something that that is very common in in uh, our context. Uh, but but I don't think that this was a, a very uncommon uh, position amongst the Reformed Orthodox. In fact, um, actually, the majority position uh, for for the Reformed Orthodox was that the magistrate was to uphold both tables of the law. Um, again, with with clear distinctions. However, um, even even uh, even Dixon, I, I think, would argue, like many of the Reformed Orthodox, that cura religionis is proper to the duty of, of the magistrate only. So the things about religion, um, not the things vital to the essence of religion, but only the things that that uh, circumvent, I guess, religion. Um, so in, in, in that sense, they're still upholding the twofold kingdom distinction, even while uh, uh, holding to this, um, what, may, what may seem very strange uh, to the modern ear, that the magistrate is to enforce uh, very forcefully both tables of the law. Mm. Well, that and much more, Jonathan, you develop in this brilliant new book, Duplex Regnum Christi, Christ's Twofold Kingdom and Reformed Theology, just published by Brill in the Studies in Reformed Theology series. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but it's been great to talk to you about the book, Jonathan. Before we do wind up the conversation, could you tell us what you might be working on next? Yeah, good. Um, I, I am working on an introduction to uh, Francis Turretin. That's one of the figures that I, I deal with as well in this book. Um, his his uh, three volumes are actually going to be published in Portuguese. Um, they're they're uh, translated now into Spanish. So I have the task of uh, writing an introduction and overview of, of his works, and then that that will be appended in the introduction to this Portuguese um, translation of of his three volumes. So that's my my next project. Very good. That that sounds fascinating. Well, Jonathan. Thanks for coming on to the show today. Thanks for writing this book and thanks for being willing to talk about it. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you, Crawford. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.